This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Today's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is from Christmas Day, 2017. Again, a blessed Christmas to all of you. You know, the gospel on Christmas Day, we've read this gospel as a church for over a thousand years in the Western Church. This has always been the gospel we read on Christmas Day. And you know, this is something of a surprise often when people come to church on Christmas Day to hear this of all gospels, because our first thoughts in Christmas think to that wonderful Christmas story we have in Luke, right? We think of, we think of a mother and a baby. We think of a stable, choirs of angels, shepherds in the fields by night. And instead, we get the first chapter of the gospels of John. There's no mother, no baby, no choirs, no angels, no shepherds. So you want to ask yourself, where'd everybody go? But the answer lies in the special role that we have for the gospel of John in the church. And again, John, we call him in the Eastern Church the, the theologian. He's the one who tells us on the deepest level, what does it all mean? What's the deeper meaning of this? So John tells us what's the real meaning of what we celebrated with that baby in a manger in Bethlehem, so real 2,000 years ago, that the Word became flesh. It's the enfleshment of the eternal Word of God, the eternal Word of God, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, became flesh. In Latin, carnum is flesh. In carnum, enfleshment, the becoming flesh. Now, I know what you're thinking. This sounds like abstract theology. But actually, when we start to live in a real appreciation of this, it changes everything. So let's ask three questions today. First of all, what actually happened? No, really, what actually happened when we said the Word became flesh? Why did the Word have to become flesh? After all, there are other ways for God to communicate. I mean, he did it very well for centuries with Israel. When they talk about in our reading from Hebrews today, it talked in many times to the prophets. The word prophet is used in the Jewish tradition much more widely than we think of the word prophet. We think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the like, but the rabbis tell us there are 55 men and women who are prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures, starting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. These are all the prophets in many ways, visions, signs, appearances. God was perfectly capable of communicating. So why did he have to become flesh? It, not that he needed to do that to tell us something. And finally, how does that fact fundamentally make a difference to our lives? So first of all, what actually happened when we say the Word became flesh? Well, put it very straightforwardly, the eternal Word of God, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, became a real flesh and blood human being, just like everybody here. The real thing, not the appearance of a real flesh and blood human being. I mean real, since he experienced hunger and thirst. Remember the talks after the temptation in the desert, it said he hadn't eaten for days. he was hungry. On the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. And more prosaically, we say, well, I understand that, but he had to learn things. As a human being, he wasn't just knew everything. He had, it says in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. And wisdom was a generic term meaning basically knowledge. He had to learn to read and like like all of us do. He wasn't a master carpenter the first day he stepped into Joseph's shop. I imagine there were some early efforts that or still in the corner somewhere that Mary liked. Okay. But in any event, <laughs> uh, he had to learn. He experienced real suffering. You know, uh, Luke tells us, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and he actually died. 
not a near-death experience. He actually died. Like John says, seeing that he was already dead. So Jesus is the real thing. He became a flesh-and-blood human being, and more than that. He was subject to temptation. I think sometimes we think, well, yeah, sure, he had one temptation. He goes out and was good. It was great. But and then I guess he was, had that behind him. No. The Scriptures teach, Hebrews tells us, that he was, as in every respect, it has, respect has been tempted as we are. Temptation was as much a part of his life as our life. It wasn't a one-time thing and done. You know, Christ was subject to all. You know, any time he could have said no. His life was a constant yes. Yes again and again. So Christ was truly one of us. That's why I love in, in Hebrews it says, being a human being says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I love that in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 2.11. He says, uh, he who sanctifies and those who have been sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, having said that, we have to watch out. We might have a false notion, and first, uh, that this is somehow a metamorphosis. He used to be God, and instead, now he's a human being instead. No, no. What happens at the same time, he always remained fully what he always had been. You know, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He never ceased being God. He became fully human, but he never ceased being to God. So instead of exchanging what he happened, he assumed our humanity into his divinity without in any way surrendering or altering it. Remember, in the middle of John's Gospel, I love where he says, this is the man, Jesus Christ, saying, I and the Father are one. So how can we understand this? Well, as Anglicans, we love to say we're both and. Like we say, gee, are you word or sacrament? We say both. We're both and, both word and sacrament. Or we like to say we're both word and table. Well, maybe a way to look at what happens in the incarnation is the great I am becomes the great both and, fully God and fully man, distinct but inseparable, the first dual citizen of heaven and earth. That's what the incarnation is. So what do we mean when we, the second question we had is, why did he have to do that? Well, I'll tell you a story that sort of illustrates it for me. I've always loved hiking. And actually, I had a buddy uh, that went all the way through high school and college and part of grad school with. And we'd even take hiking trips. We went to the Grand Canyon and Bryce and Zion and Utah. We would go and take these hiking trips. And once I was on a hiking uh, trip with him, and we were in, the, in, in some mountains in New Mexico, and we were over the snow line. And you won't guess what happened. I fell because I slipped on the snow. And, gee, my hand, my arm came down on a rock and I broke both bones in my left arm. Gee, I'm two miles, you know, from the, from the, the, the uh, trailhead. We're way up there. And saying, oh, gee. So I remember this. I turned to him. I said, Wayne, how do I get back down? And he said, well, the same way you got up here. How do I get back down? The same way I got up here. Well, that's basically the human story. Basically, what happened is one man's disobedience brought us to the point of death. One man's disobedience, that's how we get up here. But what happens in the same way, the only way back down is the way we came up. Perfect obedience to the point of death. The way we got up is the way we're going down. But we've got a problem, two problems. First of all, the first problem is because of sin, we're not capable of perfect obedience. It simply is not possible for fallen human beings 
who are under sin to possibly have perfect obedience. This simply can't be done. It's like wishing to fly. If flying were the only way out. can't be done. And also, God has a problem. The Son of God himself is incapable of doing one thing. He's God, right? We said the Word was with God. The Word was God. God is, remember we sang all during Advent, the holy, holy God, holy, almighty, holy, immortal one. He's the deathless. He's the I am. He's life itself. God cannot die. So you see our dilemma. Man can't walk back down that mountain because we're incapable of perfect obedience to death. We can't do the perfect obedience. The Son wants to help, but He's incapable as God of dying. You know, He can have perfect obedience, but not to death. So what's the answer that we have? This is the necessity of the Incarnation. He had to take on our humanity exactly so He could die for us. So that He, I love how Paul puts it, so He could assume our human nature, He could have perfect obedience to the same point of death. In Philippians, it says, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first church's first theologian was a man called Irenaeus, and Irenaeus describes this as recapitulation. We might put it in plain English, a divine do-over. <laughs> you know, basically, God did for us what, it reversed what we had done, and he did that, but to do so, the price was Jesus assuming all the weakness of our humanity, even death. He assumed that for us. That's what we celebrate. That's the connection between Christmas and Easter. Remember, you know, in Eastern icons, what happens is when you look at the manger, the manger is a little tomb, and Jesus is wrapped in burial garments. Why? Because the reason he became a human being was to die. Jesus, once in John's Gospel, he said, sort of, he says, how am I to pray, he says to his disciples. Let this hour pass? He said, but the whole reason I came into this life was for this hour, for death. So that's the reason of why incarnation. But we now ask for ourselves, what does that all mean to us? How does that change everything? How does that change how we live daily? And there are three ways, I think very practical ways, it changes everything for us. The first, the simple way, is that our whole understanding of God has profoundly changed. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, through the centuries, God had spoken again and again and communicated us through the prophets, throughout the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But for the first time, hearing the Word of God is joined to seeing. And you know, we like to say a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I had an illustration of that this morning opening presents at Christmas, and my, one of my sons got me something, and frankly, it involved doing something to make it operational. And I looked at the daunting directions and things, and immediately, he pointed out, he immediately takes up his computer and puts on the YouTube video. <laughs> so basically, what we have here is we had the instructions, now we have the video. Okay, so think of it this way. We actually are able, uh, you know, we are actually able to see God. We can see what that looks like in action. We've heard about it, but we can actually see what does it look like to see God living with us and acting in us. What does that look like? Uh, we're told that Jesus is the perfect image. He's the image of the invisible God. You know, uh, Jesus says to, uh, at the Last Supper to Philip, he says, whoever seen me has seen the Father. We say Jesus is the sacrament of God, the, the visible sign of invisible reality. So in Christ, for the first time, we can actually see what love looks like. You can talk about it, but it's seeing what Jesus does, how he lives his life, seeing the entire, not just words, actions, suddenly. Mother Teresa said love has to be put into action. 
We only see love when we see it in action, and in Jesus, we actually see it in action. Teresa of Avila liked to say about how important that was, and she said her spiritual life was almost crashed by some bad advice she got spiritually. Once she was told, very young, as a nun, she was told, you know, the more spiritually advanced you get, the more you get away from, like, meditating on the life of Jesus, you start to think of God sort of with a capital G, this very spiritual essence. And she says her prayer life was going nowhere, and then suddenly sort of God spoke to her. He basically inspired her and said she saw a, a statue of Jesus suffering. And suddenly she had this realization from God, wait a second, the only thing I'll ever really know about God is what I see in Jesus. And that's true today as it ever was. We'll never really know anything more about God than we see in Jesus. But the good news is like John of the Cross tells us, Jesus is God's final word. He's told us everything. There's nothing left to say. We've seen it all. So we say the first way that it's changed our life is we, in Jesus we can see what God, what love actually looks like. A second way is we have a God who can truly sympathize with us, who truly understands us. I love in Hebrews where it says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Why is that so important? You know the hardest part, I think, of suffering is the loneliness. And here's what I mean. That might surprise you with the loneliness, because people with suffering often have a lot of people around them. But when something profoundly bad happens, that terrible diagnosis, that death, etc., other people want to be there with you, but they can't in a certain way. People who have not crossed that line cannot be there in the same way. This is what support groups are all about, right? People in certain points, they, they suddenly have the diagnosis of cancer or something, and their family is there, but they, don't, they can't understand what it's like to get that diagnosis. In some way, only somebody else who's had it really knows. They want to be there, but they can't. You know a beautiful illustration of the Bible of that? Is remember in the garden what happens? Jesus' best friends, his inner circle, are there praying with him. He's going to die the next day, and he knows it. And you know they keep falling asleep. And they're trying real hard. Why? They want to be there, but they're not dying tomorrow. He is. So that, that's barrier that separates you. Other people just don't know. Well, what we have in Christ now is we have a God who truly knows, who really understands those broken places. Think about it. He certainly knew poverty. Jesus said, and it wasn't a figure of speech, he says, when somebody has wanted to follow him, he said, you understand the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't even have, doesn't have, a, doesn't have a house, doesn't have a place to live. And he says, lack of social status. It wasn't cute when they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We're talking about really low-rent real estate. Okay, this was not, it was very low status. Talk about, I love this, family of origin issues. How would you like this in Mark's Gospel? Talking of Jesus, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Talk about not being, this is the family. Talk about not being understood. He's out of his mind. Opposition. The opposition was so bad to Jesus that people who otherwise hated each other became friends because they could agree they, like, they disliked him. We're told that Herod and Pilate became friends that very day because they'd been at enmity previously. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Slander, many false witnesses, anxiety, physical pain, humiliation, all those things. Christ has been in all those places, so we have a God who deeply understands those things, who's with us in them. 
And moreover, God is not an idle spectator. I think we might have that idea. You know, Stephen, the first martyr, we celebrate his feast tomorrow. Stephen's feast is always the day after Christmas because his life so models, models Jesus. And what happens is Stephen's about at his trial. It's what happens is the heaven, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He looks in the sky, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. But how does he see Jesus? It's very important. You might miss it. We normally talk about Jesus goes and sits down at the right hand of the Father, right? The Messiah King. He's seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. But he's not seated. What happens? He's standing at the right hand of the Father. That's very important if you know Jewish traditions because you understand kings sit, priests stand. And so remember, Jesus is our great high priest. He's not idly looking, hey, good job, Stephen. He's there interceding for him. He's in the midst of it. God is not idly. God is involved in our pain. He's there. So I think we sometimes think of God as like a football game where, you know, it's, it's, it's winter, the field's muddy, everyone's getting dirty and cold is out there playing, and there are people in their skyboxes, you know, heated with all, you know, all the good stuff to eat, etc. And that's sort of God looking down on that team and saying, hey, go, good play. No, he's down in the field muddy with us. That's why Paul says in Colossians, he says, I'm, I rejoice in my sufferings because in them I'm completing what's lacking in Christ's sufferings for his body. The church. He's not saying anything's lacking in the cross. He's saying that Christ didn't finish his sufferings on the cross. That's what he needed for saving the world. But he continues to join in our sufferings even now. So he's not up there in the skybox looking on and saying, must be cold out there. He's down in the mud and he's out in the cold. He's with us like Stephen interceding for us. The third way, the most important, is God has empowered us for life. I love this in John. He says, John 1, 12, we read today, all who did receive him, he believed in his name, he gave the right, I think the best, better translation, the power, the power to become children of God. What does that mean? Well, here's an example sort of based on the fathers of how do we understand the resurrection of Jesus? It's going to be the story of our resurrection. Remember we say Jesus is truly God, but he's truly man, distinct but inseparable. You can't separate the two. Well, one challenge for many years, I was an acolyte master. You had to help all the, get the kids running because we used to have a church with a lot of uh, servers and things at the table. And Easter vigil was really complicated, a lot to do, and your training kids were very, very young. But one of my real challenges was you had to light the candle outside and you had to bring it in, but the candle would want to go out, right? Because it's windy outside. It's really hard not to have this candle go out. So what would happen, lighting the candle was tough. And so what you'd have, you have this um, uh, barbecue and it'd be roaring. And what happens when you have a barbecue and the fire going up? The wind actually makes the flames even bigger, right? It doesn't hurt the fire, it helps the fire grow. It feeds the fire when, you know, when, when wind comes with a big fire. But with a little flame, what happens? It goes out. So what feeds the big fire puts out the flame. So guess what happens though, if you have the candle right next to, right there at the bonfire, even though a second it might go out, it'll be instantly relit because the flames, which never go off on the bonfire, relight it. It can go out, but it can't stay out. That's what the resurrection of Jesus was. His, his humanity could die, but because it was joined to his divinity, it couldn't stay dead. That candle went out, but the bonfire of God's Spirit, the, the, we say the Lord, the giver of life, brought it right back to life forever. And Jesus says, thanks to his, his, what he did for us on the cross, 
He said, that's our story too. He said, that's exactly our story. We receive the same Spirit. Here's what the, actually Paul says. He says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which it does in our baptism, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He says, we've received that same bonfire, that same fire is the Holy Spirit that gave life to Jesus when His mortal body died gave him life that never went out again. Well, that's our story. That's the empowerment to become children of God, meaning we will live forever. In short, as Irenaeus again said, God assumed our mortality so we could assume his immortality. So today we learn, we celebrate the Word becoming flesh, the incarnation, the great both and, divinity joined to humanity, heaven joined to earth. And the good news is Christ's incarnation allowed God to share our life. But I have a lot better news than that. I want you to listen up. I said the good news is the incarnation allowed God to share in our life. The better news is the incarnation now allows us to share in God's life. That's the good news. So you may have noticed that uh, at Eucharist that the, the deacon or the priest will pour water into the wine. And something you can't hear, there's a prayer that goes with that. It's a beautiful prayer exactly on this theme. It says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbles himself to share in our humanity. So let's conclude on this Christmas day. May our response to that prayer truly be, may it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.